Welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's podcast is part one of two opportunities to hear from the authors of the book, The Devil is in the Details, System Solutions for Equity, Excellence, and Student Well-Being. For quite some time, many have acknowledged that our education systems are tired and there's a need for a redo. The pandemic has reinforced this idea and has provided us with an opportunity for a full stop and rethink. Those on the ground are dedicated educators have not had that luxury. They've been scrambling to ensure that learning continues in some way, shape, or form for their students. Academics, on the other hand, have stepped into this space. Michael Fullen is one of these academics. We're fortunate to have Michael here with us today to talk about his book that he co-authored with a former assistant deputy minister with the Ontario Ministry of Education, Mary Jean Gallagher. Michael, as many of you know, is a globally renowned academic who has served as an advisor on education policy to many governments around the world. His books on education leadership have influenced many educators, including me, over the past few decades. Welcome, Michael. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Jennifer. It's always good to be with you. Lots of uh, great work happening over the the decades that you've been influencing educational policy, Michael. Um, this is a very different time. Of course, we have uh, a pandemic that hit and uh, suddenly countries around the world are uh, having huge disruptions in learning for students and educators and families. Uh, what have you been up to personally over the last uh, few months? Well, in a kind of, uh, I guess I'd call it a perverse way, uh, the uh, pandemic has been um, actually going to turn out to be helpful for the education system. As you know, uh, we have for the last uh, three or four years at least uh, been showing that the current educational system only really engages about one third of students at best. So uh, there's a lot of other reasons why we would call it a stalled or stagnant system. So this obviously has shaken everything up uh, big time. And a lot of it is really bad, of course, and it's a lot of uh, a lot of disruption and really, uh, in the short run, emergencies that are really devastating. But coming out of this, and this is really kind of what people got to sooner than later, it's been three months now, as you know, is some interest in, okay, what is the opportunity to make some changes now that uh, it's not so coordinated or tightly controlled? And we have been positioning that with deep learning uh, you were part of that uh, at uh, Carleton, and uh, and the deep learning is uh, we can talk more about it, but it it represents a more engaging proposition. The six C's, the global competencies, and so what we've been busy on late, lately is, and this is um, I guess I'll say a bit ironic is there's more interest in deep learning coming our way now during the pandemic in the last three months than there was in the last year. So what it's done is it's brought it out into the open and people are looking for good things, innovative things, um, not just to react and uh, but really to take advantage and innovate. So I think there's a hunger for, uh, for innovation right now, along with the difficulties. 
I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's obviously not many times in history where you have an entire globe that is um, having to face the same types of challenges. And that just might be the synergy that is needed to really shake things up and and do things differently when when we do go back. Um, I liked what you were saying about the idea of, you know, suddenly people are interested in it. I think of, you know, how long it's been that we've been trying to bring technology into the use in our classrooms. And for a whole variety of reasons, it has been a tough challenge. And of course, technology being used in the, in, in the proper way, in the most effective way. But suddenly, most of us had to move to be some type of remote learning or online learning. And entire school systems, entire regions, entire countries were moving that way where access was possible. And so there is some opportunity to say, well, if we can do that, then what about having really good teaching and learning happening in all of our schools when we come back? Uh, yes. I, well, you, uh, you recall, I think, that I did a policy paper in 2011 that uh, was entitled Choosing the Wrong Drivers for Whole System Reform. And uh, one of the four wrong drivers was technology. And the reason uh, I identified that was at that time, this was a decade ago, uh, some systems were buying technology without thinking, well, how are we going to use it? So they get all this technology coming in and there was no really uh, thought, much thought given to its pedagogical side. So I ended up saying uh, technology, uh, uh, you know, the, the driver is pedagogy. Uh, and uh, sorry, the, yeah, the driver is pedagogy. It can be maybe technology could be an accelerator, but only if you knew what you're doing pedagogically. So that, that was setting that stage. And now what we find and in our deep learning model, where we have the four elements of the, of the uh, pedagogical aspects, one has to do with classroom environment, another with pe- pedagogical practices, a third with partnerships, uh, parents, students, and teachers. And the fourth one is called leveraging digital. So uh, the other good thing that's happened in the last 10 years is technology has advanced. So it's much better, much more accessible, much more prominent. People still don't know how to use it, but uh, oh, uh, you know, the COVID has forced them to use it in some fashion. And so uh, those, the, those systems that were working on it before took advantage of it uh, and uh, jumped right in and started to use it in a good way, given the circumstances. Those that hadn't even got that far were really at the mercy of emptiness. So I have to, uh, I have to say that now we begin to see technology not only as, uh, as a real accelerator, because if you can link the pedagogy and the uh, sophistication of the latest technologies and the access, which is still going to be the access is being spurred by the uh, by the the disruption. So I think it's a it's a happy convergence in that kind of ironical way. I couldn't agree more. It was interesting. Um, I had just become director of education in in Ottawa when you put that paper out. And that was something that I I believe so fully that it's really about the pedagogy and technology should be used in a really positive way, but for very specific purposes. And it was actually hard in our district. We went with the idea instead of being a tablet where everybody had a tablet, we went to a kind of bring your own device with the idea that certain devices are better for certain types of um, instructional activities. And it was a tough 
line to take because of course many parents like this idea of everybody having you know a particular device Mm -hmm. and uh, it really ended up playing out well for us because first of all the students uh, like to be able to use the device their own devices secondly the concept of different devices for different activities and thirdly the idea that it's changing so quickly and that it's really hard to keep up with it and the one thing that we had to make sure was that there was an equity piece and so we made sure that you know in our secondary schools there were libraries of devices that kids could take out and uh, it goes right to that that idea that it has to be the right technology at the right time for the right activity and uh, what I think is really interesting with the pandemic is that teachers have you know, even those that were really having trouble connecting with technology, they have done that through support with colleagues and support by family and support by school districts. And and that kind of thing is happening. And probably one of the most interesting thing is just the, the understanding of the connectivity, connecting with the students, because for the learning part of it, you know, there's a whole range of different policies around the world as far as what kids should be doing mm-hmm. right now during the, the disruption. But we know for sure. And, uh, um, Gene Clinton, who was on with us a little while ago, really talked about this idea of the connectivity and the relationships. Technology can do an amazing piece like that. And how do we make yeah. sure that especially at this time we're using it? Yeah, it is. And uh, Gene is, uh, as you know, is working with us. Uh, we made some uh, good breakthroughs. Uh, if I take the domain of pedagogy uh, that we've been working on for uh, 10 years, but uh, certainly intensely in the last five, that uh, the, the old pedagogy, if I could use that term, which is uh, uh, you know teachers at the front of the room or wherever they are, but the transmission of knowledge with uh, students on the receiving end versus proactive students and linking into uh, things that are meaningful to the student's purpose and uh, place in life and really uh, doing something worthwhile. All of that, which I'm going to call the new pedagogy, it doesn't matter how new the technology is if the pedagogy is old the whole thing will be ineffective. So I think now for us, the uh, the big breakthrough is not, is really, uh, I guess I'll put it this way, uh, good new pedagogy riding in with technology. And so we can now uh, exploit technology to leverage the pedagogy, which is really, uh, I think, a breakthrough. <laughs> Exactly, Michael. And, and uh, that's what was interesting in your, your new book, uh, The Devil's in the Details. Um, you know, you've been working on systems thinking for a long time. And again, back in my days as a superintendent of curriculum and, and instruction, I, I really learned a lot from you and your work around the idea of how do you get all levels of the system working in coherence to be moving a, a good teaching and learning forward. One of the things that I noticed in this book, of course, is that we're seeing an evolution and we're seeing getting from that 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 concept of excellence to a com- combination of excellence plus equity plus well-being. And I know some of the people that I've worked with, uh, you've already uh, all obviously worked with as well. And I think of uh, Joanne McKechn from uh, Seattle and New Zealand and, and Jean Gallagher uh, working on well-being and, and Joanne more on um, contribution and that idea of identity. It's influencing our work. And I think our work is so much stronger because of that. Tell me about that shift in, in the book, how you went in that direction. Well, there are two shifts in the book. Uh, one is how to think about system change, which I'll leave to the second shift. And the other is to position uh, uh, learning and equity uh, better. 
so that we have with, because of the work with Gene Clinton, uh, the latest we have, and it's really, a, a kind of think, a, an elegant metaphor, it's just so fabulous that uh, Gene and ourselves came up with, is to uh, parallel it with the double, uh, the double helix. So the DNA double helix, uh, without getting into the science part of this, has the, uh, the, two, the two strands. And those strands are connected by uh, uh, hydrophones, whatever they use in a technical language. So, but there are two strands and they're cross-connected in base pairs, they call it, to use that language. So that's, uh, that's what DNA looks like. But then if you look at what we want, what we've concluded, we want also two strands. And those two strands are well-being and learning. So that think of those as uh, two strands, uh, the well-being uh, that, that you've interviewed Gene about, and the learning for us is the new pedagogy, so it's a uh, deeper learning. And then uh, if you say, well, uh, in DNA, those two strands are connected, what's the connection point for, uh, for the two parts of well-being and learning? And the connection points, uh, the lines of connection are really relationships. Uh, and so now we have uh, in our diagram, if uh, we were on visual here, I'd show it to you, but uh, we have then these strands going across, let's call them four because there happened to be four in the DNA, uh, but they're only four or five and they're like belongingness, uh, sense of meaning and purpose, making a contribution to the world, all of which require relationships. So we have really kind of a consolidated powerhouse solution, at least on uh, defined, we're uh, getting good at learning and getting good at life, which is well-being, are the are the big uh, kind of foundations and the various relationships that cause those two things not only to flourish individually but to be connected, really start to uh, bring it together into focus. And then the uh, overall movement within this, one of them, is that equity is better served because, uh, as you know, equity is addressed usually by giving remedial work to students that were behind in literacy or numeracy or whatever, or dealing with dropouts. And it was all so much negativity that was not motivational to students that are already alienated. So now in this new one, we have not negativity, but attractive learning for students. And then many of the students who were disengaged now are actually quite, have quite a lot of learning potential. And they don't need remedial work. They need something more meaningful and supportive and belonging. So this has caused all of this to synergize in a, in a very, uh, I would say, efficient way, effective way, because it's not like uh, 22 things. It's four, three or four, or in the case of the double helix, two, where you really, if you bring that together, there's a lot of sparks that fly in a positive way across these uh, core variables, which are small in number. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. And and uh, the good news is that there's tons of research that supports the interconnectivity of uh, well-being or the academic skills and the teaching of social emotional skills, which lead to both better learning and better well-being. Um, when I was involved in the OECD study on, on social and emotional learning, there was a whole paper that was done that looked at the interconnectedness of those two. So when we're actually helping students uh, develop their academic skills, it positively impacts their sense of well-being. And similarly, when we um, help them with their sense of well-being, 
being, they that actually positively impacts their academic skills. So that interrelationship, I think intuitively many educators had that sense, but to know that that's the case and to hear uh, what neuroscience says is actually happening in students' brains when those two types of skills are being developed, I think it's really reassuring for educators. Yeah, the neuroscience has, uh, it continues because it's, uh, it's fairly recent on the scene in education and even in its own right. Uh, and so it continues to uh, confirm and deepen the insights just as you uh, described them there. And what we're trying to work on is how to make the combinations, uh, I guess I'll say more integrative. Uh, so instead of saying, okay, here's learning over here, now let's run over and do a bunch of SEL. Uh, that it's all in the same model for us. So hence the double mm-hmm. helix, or even if you take the six C's, when we operationalize the six C's, uh, some of those like character and citizenship and collaboration have SEL embedded in them. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, we have, uh, my, I think we've talked about this before, I'm gonna say my newest concept for this work is connected autonomy. And uh, I like yes. it better than collaborative specialism, for example, because connected autonomy captures both the individual being their own person, whether it's a student or a teacher, uh, but also says at the same time, if you're your own person today, so to speak, you better be connected tomorrow because there's lots to contribute and lots to learn and you have to be interactive. So don't get swallowed up by the group, but also don't become an island. Yeah, I think that's such uh, a great uh, description to have out there because we all, and you just have to look at what's happening, you know, in the world right now today, we all have responsibilities as individuals, but we have responsibility to the collective as well. And how do we um, help learners? How do we support our staff as they develop those concepts and continue to develop those concepts of who, I, who am I as an, invi- an individual and how can I contribute to the collective? If every one of yeah, our students we, walked out of our education systems with, with that mindset, we'd be in a better place in this world. Yeah, and I think also time is in our timing is in our favor that uh, if you think of the, the Gen Z students uh, born 1995 onward, they uh, they demonstrate, I'm going to say, 50% anxiety and 50% wanting to improve the world. Uh, so that <laughs> this, uh, this, and then if you have the right active pedagogy there, you've got a whole uh, army of change makers in the form of students who want to do something about it, who have an edge about them. And, uh, and they, they love this kind of learning because part of our uh, definition of the six C's is that uh, to contribute to the world, to improve the world, not just running off and doing a bunch of things, but to build the knowledge, the connections, and the array of things within learning. So I think it's a natural place. And um, if I were to believe in evolution as a kind of a magical thing, I'll say it's coming, the Gen Z people are coming on exactly at the right time that the world needs them. I think of uh, the work around the sustainable development goals with the UN and, um, you know, framing those 
17 goals, kind of the big meaty problems that we will as a society have to work on uh, if we want a healthy world going forward. And this is the time uh, to be able to get on this. In in the book, you talk about, you know, the climate uh, uh, challenges, etc. So we've got a number of challenges and to be able to have school systems that help students and staff develop those skills to be able to get at those big meaty problems, we'll be in better shape if uh, kids are ready for that. Yeah, and I think another coincidence here, and I really believe in this power, is that I, myself, I, when I think of the, uh, the 17 uh, sustainable goals or other things like that over the last, say, five years or more, I always thought of them as, well, they're out there as big goals to tackle, and uh, now they're not out there. And I don't mean they're in here. I mean, I do mean they're in here, but I don't mean they're in here in the, say that, in the way that uh, they're encroaching. It is uh, anybody who's alive today, if you're a 12-year-old or whatever age you want to take, knows that those goals and life are in your face. This is like, this is uh, in uh, real time. And so learning about those goals, the sustainable goals, is learning about what needs to be learned anyways. It's not like I better take, you know, address this uh, global goal. It's more like this is my life too, and this is my future. And this is the stuff we should be not only working on, but learning about so they can work on it more effectively. Exactly. And I always figured that if the students have the opportunity to develop the skills that will be needed to solve those big goals and those big issues, they're going to have the skills to solve the daily issues that they have with their learning when they're in the world of work and when they're out uh, in the community as well. So it's a, it's a win-win situation and seems very immediate now for sure. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, one way of uh, reinforcing that is to say that education is about the individual good and the social good. And the individual good is the well-being of the individual, the learning of what they, where they end up. But the social good has to be attended to by each and every individual, individually and in com combination. So I think we really are, and, and kids realize that once you, you even have this discussion, that the individual good and the social good go together and if you don't put them together, uh, one is going to suffer. True that. And it's interesting when you think of, you know, what are the kinds of uh, learning that kids get really connected to? And it's when they have their own voice and when they have agency and when they're working in an interdisciplinary way to solve or to help propose solutions to those big problems. They're actually engaged in their learning and they're loving what they're doing. So it's, yep. it's, a, it's a big circle, but they play off each other and it's a win-win situation all the way around. Yeah, in a kind of, uh, I guess, uh, an odd way, it, uh, classroom management just disappears as a problem. Michael, you did uh, a lot on systems thinking, and uh, as I mentioned before, um, it was super helpful as a as a developing leader um, to be thinking about that and thinking of my own practice and practice in the areas that I was working. And of course, we we've done a lot of work over the last couple of decades on system reform. How has your thinking evolved on the topics of systems thinking and system reform? Well, that's, uh, that's um, a great question. It's dear to my heart. It is part of the devils and the details. Uh, let me take it in just uh, two steps. Uh, the first time that we were seriously involved in system change, and when I say seriously involved, I mean you, you can't be just studying it. You have to be doing it. 
And so we did do it. I did do it with Dalton McGinty in 2003 to 2013. So we had, uh, we had that uh, opportunity to try to change the system in Ontario. And I'll say in the first phase, we did it with uh, a, a top-down frame with a, a capacity building involvement across the three levels. So the three levels we usually think of are the policy level, the district level, and the individual school and community level. So we established literacy and numeracy in high school graduation as key goals, uh, raise the bar, close the gap. And uh, we were able to, uh, using let's call it complexity theory, create a system that worked. Uh, that is to say, what had to happen was there had to be some um, direction from the center, in this case, the government. Uh, they had to invest in it. They had to have the right priorities that resonated with local schools. And then uh, had to be pushy and pulley at the same time about the agenda. So the capacity building we did, all kinds of it, uh, regional sessions and uh, uh, people at the uh, literacy and numeracy secretary that supported school systems. There was a, a hell of a lot of capacity building going on and people's capacity of individual teachers and combinations, schools working together, increased, increased. We got a lot of success. So I'm gonna say that was system down, uh, a top-down invitational, let's call it, or whatever you wanna call it. Now in our book on the devils in the details, we have a different conclusion. We say that this, uh, the world has become so complex, and this is actually in complexity theory. Um, the complexity theory that people talk about now, and I delve into that myself uh, all the time, uh, it says, uh, you, you can you can use complexity theory, which is uh, address the key factors and take into account uh, complex adaptive problem solving, that kind of thing. You can do that up to the point of when the system gets so complex, there's so many dynamic pieces to it. There's so much change within it and around it. You can no longer um, get the right complexity solution. So you have to have a different mindset. And I call it, we call it in the book, Beyond Complexity. So, so uh, now, we uh, instead of thinking of those at the top as the only ones causing system change, we in the book say, well, there's really three sets of actors, uh, local, middle, and, uh, and up. Each of them are, uh, have degrees of autonomy from the other. You can't tell another level what to do and expect them to do it. So it's not, in, in our systems, uh, there's a lot of free agents going on. And, uh, and so you have to think of a different model. And our model is to say that each uh, level, just uh, tell you, it's a, it's a whole book we wrote on it, so I can't summarize it in five minutes, but uh, each of the levels has to think of themselves as responsible for getting better of capacity within their level. Individuals, so teachers learning from each other, that's individual at the school with leadership. Districts and schools learning from each other, that's individual at the middle level. So you have to think of each level developing that way. And then our, our key concepts are to think cross-level, um, and we have it this way. If you're looking upward, think about it, how can you form partnerships upward? Like this means school to district and district to province. How can you form par partnerships and be a proactive partner, which means you don't do what you're told in a narrow sense, but you interact with the policies, you're proactive. Interest. So we've got that uh, upward exploitation. I sometimes use it, best sense of that word exploitation. And then if you're at the top or, or an upper level and saying when you look downward, don't think of them as how do you get people to fall into line with the policy. Think about it as how you can liberate 
and help focus what people are doing. If they get liberated, that is engaged in change without being too many constraints, and you have connected autonomy, there's a lot of um, integration that goes on through interaction. That interaction sometimes is laterally. So for example, in a school, when teachers are collaborative, there's a lot of cohesion. And what's happening in cohesion is that they are, in fact, uh, sorting out differences within the school in this case, or within the district. So I think our, our model then is to say, let's realize there are three levels. Let's realize you can't control it from the top, but the top has a role to set direction, to intervene when necessary, but also to liberate people, but in a focused way to build capacity and to be part of that partnership. So it is a bit complicated because it is complicated. That is the system is complicated. It's so dynamic now. And I think this is the same way the, the individual learners have to be almost that good eventually. That is, they go into a complex world. It's not ever going to be any longer um, um, able to be understood so readily. So I think, um, uh, and people have to read the book and like it, but uh, we're, we're finding that quite a lot of people identify with what's in the book the, the, around the three levels and our intra-level analysis and our inter-level analysis. And they, they like it because they recognize it. And it is, uh, to a certain extent, uh, comprehensible. That is to say, it's not like overwhelming. Uh, it's so overwhelming to do, but I think it's, uh, it's understandable, comprehensible, and they are going to be much more uh, effective if they see themselves in this connected autonomy type of system. And, you know, Michael, I'd actually argue that I think that we moved into that um, well before. I think the reason why we were so successful in Ontario between 2003 and 2015, say, is that we had actually moved into those layers of responsibility. Uh, it may have started off as top-down, and I think uh, mm -hmm. maybe at the time the province was ready to get a little bit of top-down, but it never would have worked. You wouldn't have got 72 school districts jumping on board with this if the actual parameters and policy statements didn't make sense to people and that there wasn't that building of a relationship in between the government level and the, the Ministry of Education and the district leadership. And then the district leadership having those relationships with their school leaders and the school leaders having those relationships with their teachers and staffs in, in classrooms. It's because we ended up in a place where there was that back and forth. And there was often times when someone from the ministry would reach out to me and say, hey, Jen, we're hearing some good work in your district. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and we would see that work, you know, being, you know, um, uh, reflected in policies that were coming out. And I know all, all a lot of my colleagues had that same thing. So I think we actually, the reason why we were successful with something that started off as top down was that very quickly we moved into more of that complexity uh, piece or beyond complexity. And, and that's why we were successful. Yeah, I think uh, that is exactly right the way you've described it. And of course, you're talking with Mary Jean Gallagher, who was the head of the Literacy Nermacy Secretariat for uh, six or seven of those years. And I, I can't say that we had that strategy explicitly in our minds. I, you know, I was shaping the strategy with the premier and the ministry. Uh, but uh, intuitively, I guess we knew if you invest in capacity building, you have to realize when people get capacity, they'll be more autonomous uh, because they know what they're doing and there'll be more connections. So I do think that, uh, that we laid the ground, uh, not so explicitly, but in a way that uh, built up the middle uh, that, as you're implying with Andy Hargraves, you know, and ourselves, 
use leadership from the middle to say, strengthen the middle, that is to strengthen the districts, and you will strengthen a lot of the system that way, and it will be, uh, it will have a certain degree of power. And, and that power was, means they're not gonna do what they're told around any old policy. They're gonna have uh, ideas. So we were able to draw on people like you to improve the ideas in a more natural way where you recognize, you yourself recognize, it's not a system imposing things uh, on me. I'm helping to shape what it, where we're going. And that's really what where the power came eventually. And that's, you know, when we think of systems around the world where we see systems, whether, you know, it's at the tiny regional level or at the whole country level, where there is more of that back and forth across the different um, the different levels of, of authority, shall we say, within the education system, we know that good things happen. It's the same thing with relationships between students and teachers when there's a a flow back and forth of of learning from each other and and providing guidance and pushing each other. Uh, we know learning takes place. Yeah, and I think now, and if you uh, you've been part of this all the way through, uh, the, you you and I are right, so so to speak, uh, talking about its evolution from two thousand and three, let's say, to recent times. But recent times, uh, as you know, there's been a shift to the right on the part of. Uh, government's leadership in uh, the U.S. and Ontario and uh, in England. And uh, I think we, I won't say we're losing some ground, but we are actually getting leaders who are not compatible with this participatory uh, definition of uh, a more sophisticated definition of a solution. And, uh, and this means that those systems that do uh, do well still uh, I, I'm going to put it this way. I'm thinking now of South Korea, uh, Singapore, uh, Shanghai, that they've gone to fairly uh, intensive, um, I don't know, I want to almost say impositional methods, but it's like if you think of those systems, there's such a commitment on the part of parents and everybody to do well in the PISA test or whatever tests there are, that the students are just hounded into learning. And, that, and this has caused... Uh, anxiety and uh, suicide rates to go up uh, in some of those countries. And in some of them, like South Korea, there are these, uh, uh, to get into the best schools makes, I'm talking about high schools, makes a big difference, or even elementary schools. But they have a system now, a private school system in Shanghai is the same, where you have uh, prep schools to a, where your student can go after school in order to get into better schools. And then you have prep schools that have good reputations where the idea is to get in, go from one prep school to a better one so that you can get into a better school. This is a rat race, and that rat race is not educationally sound. And it gets at the idea that um, senior leaders in governments have a responsibility to make sure that that balance between learning and well-being is soundly in place. And I think your book starts to get at that idea that we all need to be thinking of that at the different levels, because when one of those is out of balance, uh, the students will suffer. Yeah. Michael, you talked about, um, at the end, you kind of, in the last chapter, you and Mary Jean kind of get at that idea of what could it look like. And obviously, with the pandemic, there has just been a real laser focus to this idea. We have an opportunity to bring back better or build back better. What's your thinking on that? Uh, well, I think um, this is a time for profound system change. And I think that a lot of people uh, know it now. 
uh, you've been connected with OECD as I have, and the discussions going on now behind the scenes, let's call them, although I'm not talking in secrets here, is that there's several systems around the world that are not satisfied with what, with, where, what, what the policies are. And so this, uh, this is uh, now leading to considering how do we get the six C's, the global competencies, as part of it instead of just intense uh, science or intense literacy. Uh, so I think, uh, I think what, you know, what my take is that uh, uh, COVID has created, thrown a, you know, a bomb in the center of it and has created a crater. And that within the survivors in that crater, so to speak, are coming out and saying, how can we do something? We ourselves are working with some of the individual school and the district level. And we will have a paper actually coming out in mid-June, June 15, on uh, the transition from uh, COVID to uh, a big disruption to innovation, that kind of thing. So I actually see a lot of uh, innovative energy on the ground now after the after the extreme uh, emergencies are taken care of or addressed, uh, uh, innovative energy that's uh, active now, three months later, and trying to shape the future. And some of that innovative energy and ideas are going to find uh, uh, response of uh, policymakers at the state level or the country level in the next three years. We're going to have to take a closer look at how the different um, groups have been affected by COVID. Uh, again, I think COVID has shine a, you know, shone a bright light on the inequities that are in our systems and how do we make sure that all the different groups of children are actually having an opportunity uh, to be successful and to get the resources that they need to have to develop those skills to make them ready to be happy and healthy in later life. Yeah, well, this is why we're trying to make equity and excellence uh, and well-being all part of the same uh, focus, uh, because, it, it, you know, the other issue is that extreme inequality, I call it galloping inequality, has been happening in the world for many years, but let's say the last 20. It's got, incrementally. So when you have such extreme, and we see the, the riots right now going around, the cities in the U.S. and even Toronto, to a certain extent, with uh, with one of the recent killings, and so you get a you get a kind of an atmosphere here that has gone wild, and it has to do with society, not with the schools. So it's very hard for schools to be equitable when society isn't. Uh, although our book, as you know, said it's time that schools tried to be pushy on the proactive change side and not be recipients all the time of a bad society. They have to help change that society. And then I hope we'll get some policy uptake, not just in education, but on economics and housing and health. It's certainly an opportunity to make some pretty significant changes. Michael, just to end off the conversation, um, you know, after reading through Devil, Devil is in the details, is there anything that you would like to say, any advice that you would give to system leaders or school leaders right now? Uh, well, the main advice is read my book, of course, our book. Uh, <laughs> that's a good start. Uh, but the, uh, the, the actual advice is to, uh, Pay attention to your own role in these new terms, like your building, well-being, and uh, learning. Uh, but also make sure that you think of not just my own role in that direct sense, 
but how do I how do I how do I play out my systemness? And by systemness, all we meet is connecting to something bigger than your own corner of the of the world. So I think we need people leaders who have a um, a strong orientation to doing better in their own situation, and also a strong equal connection to the outside. And one of the big findings in my, the, my other book, just before The Devil, which is a book called Nuance, was that nuance leaders are leaders who are experts in context. So if you think of that, what it really means is any leader that goes into a position, their first priority should be to deepen their knowledge of the context that they've moved into. And this means participation. This means listening. This means being a learner as well as a leader. So I think that all leaders, are, are, just to summarize my advice, all leaders have to know that they have to be good at understanding their immediate context in depth. As we say, every time you change a job, you become automatically de-skilled to a certain extent, which is the knowledge of the new context. And then having that as a cardinal rule, the second cardinal rule is think of your systemness. How can I connect a little wider, a little larger than what I have in my own role? And if we get all kinds of leaders who are good internal to their context and good at external connections, we'll have a chance. So true, Michael. And when I think of the expression that I hear a lot of teachers talk about and they say, know your learner. And so it's the idea of getting to know each and every one of our students, uh, senior leaders. We have uh, the opportunity and the responsibility to get to know our contexts and to try to get all of our levels uh, rowing in the same direction. And uh, hopefully we can uh, improve our school systems and, and make the world a better place. Yeah, that's the idea. And that's uh, never been more needed. Thanks to Michael for joining our podcast today and for sharing his book and his advice on how to recreate our education systems. If you like this podcast, you may be interested in our podcast with Michael's co-author, Mary Jean Gallagher. It's fascinating to hear their two perspectives on their book. You can find Mary Jean's podcast on the Knowledge Check Signature Leadership Series portal. Michael has also joined us for a roundtable with Pedro Noguera on his article, The Right Drivers for Whole System Reform. Again, if you're interested, you can find the roundtable featuring Michael as a panelist on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Series portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.